0: Well, we now get to the part in our topical study of the book of Proverbs that deals with wealth. And obviously, when we talk about wealth, we talk about a very thorny issue. And on the one hand, it's somewhat surprising why this issue would be so thorny And yet, as we get into this study, what will be a two-part mini-series this Wednesday and next Wednesday, we're going to see why it is such a difficult issue to to discuss and to apply even in our own practical living. And what we notice when we talk about wealth is that this is an issue that consumes the attention of most everyone. And, And it consumes our attention, too, whether we like it or not. It's a part of living. There are expenses to be paid. We have to have roofs over our head and clothing. And and so the issue of wealth and money, prosperity, expenses, those kinds of things play into our everyday activity. I would venture to say that probably many of you, even today, have checked your bank account level or looked at your credit card statement or looked in your wallet to see if you had the right amount of cash that you needed for the day. This is something that is central in our lives, whether we like it or not. And it's also central and an issue of obsession in our society today. And I was thinking about how our society looks at wealth and and certainly we could look at all the prosperity preaching, and things of that nature. I'm, I'm not going to talk about them so much tonight as next week. Instead, I, I thought more just about how our culture looks at wealth. And I tried to categorize what's going on in our culture into several different categories of responses to wealth. One of them, you could say, is the category of the, the uh, crony capitalist The Wall Street trader, the executive, and all the stuff that goes on there. These are the people who uh, control vast amounts of money, break laws, manipulate people, cheat, steal, prey upon the limitations of the less prosperous, and do anything that they can, including break whatever laws they can get by with. You know, these are the the crony capitalists, and certainly there are many examples of that in our culture today. There's a constant stream of exposes of the lives of the rich and famous and how they can pretty much get away with anything. So that's how a portion of our culture will look at wealth. They're the despised sinners. And then you have what we could call the ethical materialist. This is someone who won't break the laws. This is someone who will even be nice to, their, to his neighbor. Someone who will abide by all the laws, ethical laws, that have been put in place by the government and may even be very kind people. Nonetheless, from their from their perspective, wealth is everything. They are those who believe that material wealth, prosperity, are the greatest good, and all of their activities, as moral or ethical as you might call them, are, are still designed or focused on this objective of making money. Those people can, uh, can, they, they make up a considerable part of our culture today, I would say, still. And then, of course, you have this growing segment of our culture, the disgruntled socialist. These are those who want equity of outcome. There are much in the news these days because, as we know, there are prominent politicians who espouse this kind of ideology, the socialist ideology. They are those who want the distribution of wealth, according to their own understanding or their own preference of equality or equity. They are those who want to detach effect from cause. They are those who want to provide instant gratification, to remove the need to have to work hard in order to enjoy the privileges of life. These are the disgruntled socialists, and they are a growing segment of our population, and certainly uh, many of them are now coming from the universities being indoctrinated there with socialist ideology. But with all of these categories, let's not misunderstand what is really at at the heart. Whether you're a, a greedy, crony capitalist, whether you are an ethical materialist, You'll be nice to your neighbor, but you still love money. Or a disgruntled socialist. All of those categories have envy as the root of their motivation. The socialist, the crony, capitalist, the ethical materialist all love money. Don't let any socialist tell you that they don't love money. They do. Oh, they love money. They just love other people's money. And they want it for themselves. And it, all, all of these three have this common denominator of the love of money. And Paul talks about this in First Timothy six verse 10. And this is what rises to, to our awareness, raises to our awareness the, the challenge associated with wealth. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, "The love of money." is a root of all sorts of evil. Many different kinds of evil in our society are traced back to this taproot called envy, the love of money. Paul continues and he says, And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we have to understand this. It's not just the rich who are guilty of the love of money. It's not just the crony capitalist who is guilty of the love of money. Even those without money can be guilty, just as guilty of the love of money. Even the socialist who's living on his parents' couch in the basement can be just as guilty of the love of money. And what intensifies this love of money is the thought that my neighbor possesses it more of it than he should and I possess less of it than I deserve. So there's this idea that someone else has more and they shouldn't and others and I don't have what I should. I don't have what I deserve. It's envy, covetousness. I liked what Dorothy Sayers said about envy. Envy begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? It ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Os Guinness has defined envy this way, and this is helpful as well. Envy enters when seeing someone else's happiness or success... We feel ourselves called into question. Then, out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring the other person down to our level by word or deed, or you could even add thought. They belittle us by their success, we feel. We should bring them down to their deserved level. Envy helps us feel. Full-blown envy, in short, is dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. This is the problem of humankind. Whatever ideology, whatever political movement is out there, it's mostly motivated by envy and the love of money and the seeking of power. We see this even... Addressed by God in the Ten Commandments, right? This is not a new thing. When God established his people as the nation that would be a kingdom of priests between him and the Gentile nations, he gave them ten words, ten commandments. And the tenth one is this Exodus 20, verse 17 You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And in this 10th commandment, we could spend time there pulling apart a whole theology of wealth, even from that, that single statement. In that, just to give a summary of it, we see that God himself, as he with his own finger, writes this 10th commandment, you see that he gives approval, tacit approval, of personal wealth. In that commandment, we see God giving approval of the concept of personal wealth. We also see, built into this commandment, the legitimacy of protecting private property. God gives this commandment in order to protect the well-being of the one who has these things who may be become a victim of the one who wants those things the commandment was instituted in order to provide protection of this private personal property we also see in this in this 10th commandment the inevitability of varying levels of material outcomes now that's a big deal today in society if you talk to that segment of socialists they want Equity of outcome. Everybody gets the same thing in the end, no matter what you put into it. But we see in this commandment, the 10th commandment, already the idea of a varying outcome. Not everybody will have the same things. And so the commandment had to be instituted to protect against that kind of thinking. And of course, most directly from this commandment, we see the condemnation given To any who would lust after what belongs to another person. We often don't connect this, but the concept of personal property, protection of that personal property, the realization that there's going to be varying levels of outcomes in this world, and the demand and command of the Lord not to lust after others, it's all built into that tenth commandment. Now, we could look at a lot of texts like this, but Proverbs provides some of the most expansive teaching on wealth. In fact, as one commentator said, Trumper Longman said, judged by the number of Proverbs dedicated to the theme of wealth, it is certainly one of the most important themes in the book. Certainly, Proverbs has much to say about wealth, and so this... Evening and next week as well, we're going to survey Proverbs and draw out the, the the wealth of truth about wealth from this book. But as we do, I want to make this important qualification. The book of Proverbs has been abused as it comes to wealth. Some have gone to the book of Proverbs, taken out a simple statement, just one statement read it out of the context of the entire book and then built a whole theology just on that one statement and thereby constructing what is an inaccurate picture of God's view of wealth we can't do that in fact the very the very reason why there are so many proverbs in the book of proverbs about wealth and prosperity the reason why there's so many is because no one single statement can capture the entire truth about wealth. Not one single aphorism, not one single truth statement can summarize everything that God wants us to understand about prosperity. And so God has given us, in the book of Proverbs, a wealth of statements. And what we must be careful to do is to look at all of these statements within their proper context in light of the entire book, and from that draw a proper biblical understanding of wealth. This evening we're going to look at four such principles, and I want to say this. I I, I encourage you to come back next week and the week after as well, because I can't say everything there is to say about wealth just tonight from Proverbs And if you just listen to what I'm going to say tonight, and that's all you hear, it's not the full picture, and I want to make that clear, you're going to maybe leave here tonight and going, well, there's surely more than this, and the answer is yes, but you'll have to come back next week and the week after as well as we talk about charity uh, in a couple of weeks from now. But what we will look on tonight are these four truths from the book of Proverbs. Number one, wealth is is a blessing from the Lord. Wealth is a blessing from the Lord. Indeed, as we will see as we study Proverbs, wealth can never be placed in the same category as truth, as wisdom, as righteousness or integrity. Those are all positive moral qualities. Wealth doesn't belong alongside of them. But nonetheless, Proverbs does make it clear that God gives wealth to men as a blessing. Particularly as one of the rewards to those who fear Him. This principle is, is based upon the cause and effect logic that we've seen already so many times in the book that undergirds biblical wisdom. God has wanted us to understand that He rewards those who seek Him. Remember Hebrews 11 verse 6? Without faith it is impossible to please Him for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That is a that is a. Biblical statement, an affirmation of the character of God, and those rewards are manifold. Certainly, we would automatically say that that reward is spiritual in nature, relational in nature, but some of that reward can also be material blessing. Let's look at some examples. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Notice, the cause and effect relationship that we have in this set of verses. Proverbs 3, verses 9 to 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now again, if you just stop there and run out and build a theology on this, you will be imbalanced and mistaken we don't just stay in this verse but this verse does communicate a truth one writer puts it this way a statement such as proverbs 3 verses 9 to 10 is not a formula for success nonetheless this proverb is making the claim that there is a relationship between spiritual values and one's wealth And one might expect to gain materially if one honors the Lord with his wealth. In other words, the key concept to get from this, and we're going to look at some more Proverbs in just a moment, is this, God does respond to obedience. He does respond to to godly right fear. He does respond to, to those who seek him by using, in many cases, material benefits. Sometimes in our thinking, we have been impacted so much by a theology of austerity, we think that God would never do that. No, God, God doesn't use material things. That's, that's not how he blesses. It's always just spiritual. And so we can put on this kind of hyper-spirituality. But the book of Proverbs helps, helps us to see... That God does use material wealth and prosperity. He does raise the standards, the living standards for us as an example of his goodness. And we must give him honor for that. Proverbs 3 verses 13 and 16. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Solomon is saying this, that if you find biblical wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord, she will bring you life and she will bring you material benefit. Proverbs 10, verse 22. It is a blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Again, don't run out with that single verse. There's more to come. But again, it shows us that that wealth is The increase of material possessions and standing and the increase of a a way of life, a standard of living, is, is not something inherently evil. It is something that God himself gives. And that's important because we need to give honor to whom honor is due. And when that happens to us, we must recognize that this happens not because of our own ingenuity and diligence. This is a gift from the Lord And He is due our worship and adoration for that. Proverbs 19, verse 10, luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. In other words, prosperity is not right. In in biblical wisdom, prosperity is not right for one who spurns the Lord. It is right for one who fears Him. Proverbs 22, verse 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Now, we could look at many others. I've got them listed in your notes. But even at this point, we can come up with several conclusions. One of them is this. The the wisdom of Proverbs is not anti-materialistic. Again, sometimes we have this idea that that the Bible is, is always against the material world. But Proverbs does not portray wealth. Proverbs doesn't even portray great wealth as inherently evil. The Bible, and Proverbs in particular, is not anti-materialistic. In other words, it's not against the material world, the, the created world, as if it is something evil. Secondly, Proverbs does not teach what is known as dualism. Dualism is this idea that we are caught up in this cosmic battle between the material world and the spiritual world. And salvation is seen in our liberation from the material world. We've got to get out of it as quickly as possible. And that's true salvation. When we look at Proverbs, there's no such thing as dualism. Our greatest need is is, is not to be somehow liberated from our material existence. And there are problems with our material existence, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is not some kind of liberation from the material world. Instead, Proverbs operates on two very important assumptions when it comes to wealth. Number one is this. There is inherent goodness in God's material creation. God's created world is good. Genesis 1.31 states that, right? God saw all that he had made, and behold... And wow, it was very good. Now again, we acknowledge that sin has corrupted this, but it has not removed the inherent good that God has intended for his creation. The goodness of God's material creation is so important to remember. And that means this, that, that God has Endued, or he has endowed to this created world a tremendous amount of potential, resources all for the purpose of man to exercise dominion over and thereby flourish in god 's created world. Sin will do everything it can of course to prevent that, but that is what God has made within his own creation and then secondly, the second important assumption is this: not only must we recognize that biblical wisdom assumes the goodness of God's material creation, but also biblical wisdom assumes God's direct and personal role as the provider of material needs and blessings. These things come to us not just by impersonal laws, benefits, food, Housing, the advancements in science and medicine. These things are not just products of an impersonal force. These things come from the hand of God himself that is so specific that it even comes down to the very bread that we eat. And it comes through in Jesus' prayer that he teaches his disciples, give us this day our daily bread. God is the one who gives Material blessings. So, to summarize this, let's recognize this for this first point. When we say that blessing, that wealth is a blessing from the Lord, number number one is as a summary for that. We must recognize there is no inherent virtue in asceticism. There is no inherent spirituality in the in the pursuit of privation for privation's sake. There's no benefit to what some call an austerity theology where we look upon the material world, food, clothing, the advances in technology, and we look at those things as all just plain evil. There's There's no spirituality in that kind of approach. There's no virtue in that kind of asceticism. Moreover, it should never be a man's goal simply to live a destitute life as that, as if that is the, as if that is synonymous with godliness. That was that's the whole problem with monasticism, and asceticism. It was the whole problem in the Roman Catholic Church that distorted so much of a view of God's creation. The Roman Catholic Church separated the the, the clergy from the laity and said to the to the clergy, "You're the only ones doing the real work that God pays attention to." The the laity they're engaged in secular work. Their work doesn't matter because they're involved in milking cows and being bankers and plumbers and electricians. And then you had this group of, of, of monks who would go out into the wilderness and live off nothing and sleep on stone and they were esteemed as the really godly ones. That is not biblical. That does not take into account the wisdom of Proverbs. And it was the Reformation that came along and the reformers who, who said, no, whether you're a milkmaid or a lawyer or a preacher, there's no distinction between clergy and laity. If you do your work to the glory of God, it's to the glory of God. He's, he's called you to do that work for his glory. Moreover, with the Reformation and the, 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 the Puritans came this idea that wealth is not inherently evil. It's what we do with it that is evil. But God has given wealth to be enjoyed. In fact, we could say this. Wealth is not even merely neutral. It is in itself good. God has created it for the general good of his creatures. And he does use it to bless those who fear him. But we must remember, as we will see in this study of Proverbs, wealth is just a means to an end. It is never the end itself. And that means to an end is that we would worship the giver of those good gifts. Just a text here that helps with this. 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 to 5, Paul is responding to the the efforts of those in his day to bring in kind of monastic orders already there in the first century. To bring in this austerity theology, to bring in an asceticism. And so Paul responds to Timothy, warning Timothy about that movement, and says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. to 5. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Another example of Paul's teaching is Acts chapter 14, verse 17. As he preaches in Lystra, he gives this important statement about the character of God and what God has has done in his creation to leave a witness of his goodness. Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul preaches, God did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. These things are to be enjoyed, but never as an end in themselves. They are always given by God to point us to the giver and to cause us to exalt that grace, that goodness in his relationship to us. Puritan William Perkins said this, If we happen to have inherited much property, we are to enjoy those in good conscience as blessings and gifts of God. The Puritan John Robinson also said this, If goods be gotten by industry, providence, and skill, it is God's blessing that both gives the faculty and the use of it and the success unto it again what robinson is recognizing there is if god gives you wealth you are to recognize it this is so important as a blessing from his hand doesn't come from your ingenuity or skill doesn't come from your iq and your ability to make a self-made man you must recognize that any Improvement in your life comes directly from his hand. It is a blessing, and therefore your responsibility is to turn and give thanks. Number two, wealth is a consequence of wisdom and diligence. Wealth is a consequence of wisdom and diligence. Proverbs teaches that wealth is a consequence of character. Specifically, it points to two things about character that that are the, the great Uh, wealth generators. And these two things are wisdom and hard work. Wisdom and diligence. Proverbs wants us to understand that if one sows the seeds of diligence and teachability, one is likely to reap a harvest of material rewards. Again, I'll preface this and say that's not all there is. We're going to get to something in just a few moments that qualifies this. But But Solomon and the the sages of Proverbs want us to understand that there is a connection. There is a connection. In fact, we can say this from a look at Proverbs. Few things are as determinative for the growth of prosperity as diligence and self-discipline. Let's look at two of these. Let's look at wisdom and, and, and diligence. Look at what Proverbs has to say about wealth as a consequence of wisdom. Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 16. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. In other words, you find wisdom, true biblical wisdom. What does she provide? Life and blessing, material blessing. Proverbs 8, 18 to 21. Proverbs 8 contains this lengthy, this lengthy speech from wisdom personified, Lady Wisdom. And she says this Proverbs 8, 18 to 21 Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold and even pure gold, and my yield better than choice is silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of justice, to endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Proverbs 13, verse 18, Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, the one who neglects instruction, the one who neglects correction, the one who neglects wisdom. But he who regards reproof will be honored. Proverbs 14, verse 24. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. And again, Proverbs 24, verses 3 to 4. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant Treasures. Solomon wants us to understand that wealth is not arbitrary. It's not an arbitrary collision of atoms in this world. There is an explanation to it in a world that God has made, a world that is based upon the, the foundation of cause and effect. Another cause for wealth is diligence, wealth is a consequence of diligence. Proverbs is filled with statements to this regard. Proverbs 10 verse 4, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12 verse 11, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. The idea of tilling is is hard work, especially in those days. It represented strenuous labor, sweat, blood blisters. To till the land. But he who is diligent to till his land will have plenty of bread. But he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Proverbs 13 verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. Proverbs twenty eight nineteen: He who tills his land will have plenty of food. But he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty very clear teaching that associates the cause with the effect if you invest diligence you can as a rule expect a return in the form of material benefit and again this is so important because in our in our our, our day in our society today this is being rejected and this is not just some arbitrary effort. There is an effort to throw off all the, the, the things that God has programmed into us as human beings, as well as into, our, uh, into creation as a whole. Society is intent on throwing all of these laws off, trying to live in rebellion to them. And whenever man does, it never ends well. So for us, we must recover these and recognize In in contradistinction to our society, what really explains the generation of wealth and benefit both to one's family as well as to society? And so, to summarize this point, we must recognize this. It is wrong to conclude that the acquisition of wealth is just a mysterious providence without any explanation. Indeed, the sovereign creator and sustainer of life Can bless whom he pleases to bless. He can give to whom he pleases to give. He can take away from whom he pleases to take away. Job said it so well in Job chapter 1, 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Certainly we must recognize that. God has the right to. To do as he pleases with his world, with our lives, and with the the, the wealth of this world. But Proverbs intends to show that there is an order to God's universe. The order of sowing and reaping. It's important for us to recognize that. That is such an important lesson, especially for those of you who are just starting out on the track of careers and work. You will reap what you sow. Again, socialism rejects that. And it rejects it with a fury. But biblical wisdom teaches different. Biblical wisdom wants you to live by this revealed will And not by the mysterious providence. What do I mean by that? God will have his mysterious ways in your life no matter what. You don't know what that is. Maybe God will bless you beyond what you could ever possibly do. Maybe you are lazy. And God will still decide out of his good pleasure to give you much. That's possible. Or maybe you will work hard. There are many who are godly and work very diligently and have very little. That is also part of God's mysterious providence. And we need to be ready for that. But we don't order our lives around mystery. We order our lives around what God has revealed. And God has revealed this so that we would know how we are to walk successfully in this world. And he has told us, you need wisdom and you need diligence and it will make your life better. You need to understand that. You need to understand that. Just a side note to this, it is this principle which leads us to the concept of what we call today a meritocracy. What's meritocracy? Well, meritocracy is an abhorrent idea, again, to much of our culture today, especially in uh, social justice circles and in the university and the education system. What is meritocracy? Meritocracy says this, that merit is equal to wisdom plus diligence. That's how I'm going to define a meritocracy. Merit, one's merit, one's merit to move up, one's merit to gain a promotion, one's deservedness to receive a higher pay or greater influence or a position of leadership is based upon the combination of wisdom and diligence. It comes from the book of Proverbs. And of course, this is what our world largely rejects today. It doesn't want this to be based on these things. But notice what Proverbs says. Proverbs 19, verse 10. Luxury is not fitting for a fool. Don't give the fool a promotion. That's what Proverbs teaches. That is meritocracy. Meritocracy. Luxury is not fitting for a fool. Proverbs 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. But everyone who is hasty surely will come to poverty. Or Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Now again, beware of the culture that today seeks to upend God's order. And wants to tell you and your children that skill, that effort and diligence doesn't matter. Everyone needs the same outcome. Everyone deserves the promotion. Everyone deserves the salary increase. Everyone deserves this and this and this and this. It is the effort to reject the cause and effect order of God in this world. And it will lead to disaster as many societies have experienced in human history. Now, number three, wealth is thwarted by folly. I'll go through this quickly because really it just serves as the other side of the coin to point number two. To the degree that wealth is a consequence of wisdom and diligence, poverty is a consequence of foolishness. Foolishness puts prosperity out of reach for its followers... By leading them down the path of failure and luring them to waste whatever wealth they already do possess. Let me say that again. This is how folly works. Foolishness puts prosperity out of reach for its followers. By leading them down the path of failure and luring them to waste, to squander whatever wealth they may already have. Now, Proverbs points to several causes, several roots of foolishness that cause this kind of poverty. Number one, laziness. Laziness. Proverbs 6, verse 10 to 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Never mind the robber who has the mask and the gun. Just develop a habit of laziness and you'll meet the same end. Proverbs 10 verse 4, poor is he who works with a negligent hand. Proverbs 13 verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. Proverbs 19 verse 15, laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Now, again, men, if you say some of these words in the wrong context, you'll be canceled. You will be canceled. This is not what the world wants to hear, because again, the world is interested most in throwing off whatever order God has created. But this is so very important to teach our children, and it's so very important to imbibe into our own lives. There's another cause of poverty. Proverbs identifies hedonism as a cause of poverty. Hedonism, that, 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 that seeking of pleasure, instant gratification. Notice what Proverbs says, in particular two areas. Sexual immorality is one of the ways in which, which wealth is squandered. Proverbs 29, verse 3, A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. Now understand this. Few things are as wealth-canceling as divorce. And few things cause divorce as adultery. Adultery causes so many divorces today and divorces wipe out so much wealth just as a statistical analysis of what goes on in our society. If you want to get involved in in sexual immorality, you can be guaranteed you are going to have to pay the price in your pocketbook. It will catch up to you, and it will destroy whatever wealth. It will destroy the inheritance. It will destroy whatever home. And listen, there even are some men here who can testify and say, that was my life. I lost my home because I committed adultery my wife left me, divorced, and I had to sell the home. Now I have nothing. Must realize this pursuit of instant pleasure is a chief cause of poverty. Another one is under this hedonism heading: is this drinking and gluttony? And certainly, this doesn't just have to do with drinking alcohol and eating expensive food. You can, by by analogy, put it onto other things. Maybe it's entertainment today. But notice Proverbs twenty-one, seventeen. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Proverbs 21.20, There is a precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. There's no frugality. There's no limitations. There's no discipline. The hedonist just consumes it all. And by doing so, entrenches himself on the path to poverty. Another one is risk-taking. Risk-taking is also another cause of poverty. Now, how does Proverbs communicate this? Actually, it's very interesting. You may not have noticed this, but when you get down into it, you see Proverbs communicates the danger of risk-taking in two related areas. Number one, in... The offering of collateral for other people's debts, which is always a risk. Number two, in the taking on of debt for yourself. In the taking on of uh, things, buying things that you don't have money for, that is risk taking and it is a chief cause of poverty. Notice 11 verse 15, he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure get that and it's not just that you know somebody you know just comes in off the 405 freeway comes to your house and says will you sign for me uh, you know it's probably you're not going to fall for that but being a guarantor can take other uh, uh, can take other forms as well when you pledge your wealth thinking that someone is somehow going to do something with it to make A whole bunch of money. It's the same idea. Risk taking when there are significant risks involved in that. Proverbs 22 verse 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. This incessant indebtedness is preventing any significant kind of Growth in, in wealth and prosperity for so many in the church today as well as as in, the, in, the, in society in general. Proverbs 22, verses 26 to 27. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Again, pointing to how these things eliminate wealth. And let me just say this as a, as a side note here. Every so often we'll hear of, of, of men here at the church who will try to use the church as a, as a way to find co-signers. Those who will give collateral for the next you know, special way to make money. It has happened many times here and, and, and will continue to happen. Let me just say this. If, if someone comes here on a, on a Sunday morning and wants you to co-sign for a loan, you got to tell me and I'll come and take them out at the knees. All right? This is not the place to find co-signers. In fact, if you do, you need to be ashamed. You don't come to the brother's And ask them, using the pressure of the church and our relationship here, to try and find those who will take the risk together with you. And then, of course, when you lose it all, you just walk away. That's not what the church is for. Risk-taking is a chief cause of poverty. Men be very, very careful about indebtedness and co-signing. Finally, number four, and I know our time is up here so important. Wealth is limited in value. And I do want to get to this. I do want to get to this because this does add a little bit more balance that we need before we leave for tonight. And, and that will take us through to next week. Wealth is limited in value. Proverbs does not leave these character consequence principles without qualification. Through numerous better than and other kind of comparison sayings, The book of Proverbs makes clear that there are notable exceptions. There are notable exceptions to the character consequence principles. If you're wise and diligent, you'll become more prosperous. If you're foolish, you'll become poorer. Those are the character consequence principles. But Proverbs does recognize limitations to that order. It does speak on these things. And what it communicates is this, while prosperity is a blessing from God and while poverty is something we should not strive for, we should strive to get out of, nonetheless, our material standing is not the most important issue for biblical wisdom. Number one, wealth is not better than wisdom itself. Remember that, wealth is not better than wisdom itself. Just look at Proverbs 8 verse 10 to 11. Where Lady Wisdom says, take my instruction and not silver. And knowledge rather than the choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Whatever you're doing to increase your standard of living, that should be, that, that, that should be smaller than and outshone by your efforts to gain biblical wisdom. And if that's not happening in your life, you've got messed up priorities. That's what Solomon would say. Number two, wealth is not better than character. Wealth is not better than character. Proverbs 11 verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 28 of chapter 11, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green green. Leaf in Proverbs 15, verse 16 better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. It raises the question what are you doing to gain character? What are you doing to develop the qualities that reflect the character of God in your life? What are you doing? And that, again, should outshine whatever efforts you're putting at behind a, to get into a career or to, to get that next home that, that you want to buy for yourself rather than renting or you want to you, you move somewhere. Whatever your material aspirations are should always be secondary to the development of character. And that should be obvious in your life. Well, wealth is not better than family. Number three, wealth is not better than family. Proverbs recognizes that relationships cannot be priced. Better is a dish of vegetables, 15 verse 17. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. 17 verse 6, grandchildren are the crown of old men and the glory of sons is their Fathers, that's where the crowns are. Grandchildren and fathers. Proverbs 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Or 19, verse 14, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife, that's from the Lord. So I want to challenge you men with regard to this third one as well. How, do you, how does your family or your pursuit of a family, and in particular, the work that you are doing to become marryable, how does that compare to your pursuit of career and material possessions? It should always, always outshine your career pursuits. As one writer said, wealth creation is not the problem. Wealth worship is. As we close our time tonight, getting back to the idea of envy and how envy corrupts our proper view of the resources God has given us. I want to leave with a statement by Spurgeon here. He said this, the cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence Worshiping God and communing with him all day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. We were going to sing tonight, but we won't do that. We're going to have another hymn because our time is late, but let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this teaching from the book of Proverbs. And as we embark on this multi-part study, we pray that you would use your word to reveal in us our unbiblical ideas about material wealth, prosperity, poverty, ultimately we pray that as we focus on this topic, we would do so not to to fan the flames of envy and, and materialistic lust, rather we would be able then to properly put wealth in its place, that we would give glory and honor to you for how you enable us to make our lives and lives of other people better. But we pray that as we study this topic, it would never lead to us ever valuing wealth in any way similar to your infinite value. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our greatest treasure. Amen.